Okay, it's been more than a month since our last message of, from the book of Acts. So let me refresh your memory first. And then we will read our passage through the sermon. So we are in chapter 5, and only a year has happened since chapter 1, when Jesus ascended to heaven. And many things, many things have happened in one year in the early church. So imagine, imagine a man from this early church telling you about his personal journey. He would say something like this. Well, my time in this church has been a personal journey through miracles from farewells to healing. As I stood on that hill watching Jesus ascend into the heavens, a mix of emotions twisted within me. It was a bittersweet farewell, but there was this feeling that something amazing was coming. Little did I know that my life was on the verge to change forever. Pentecost arrived like a sudden wing, shaking the room and stirring the souls. Tongues on fire descended upon us, announcing the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Our voices, once ordinary, now resonated in languages unknown to us. And Peter, Peter, ignited by this divine flame, stood before the crowd, proclaiming the risen Christ with a conviction that moved mountains. The response was nothing short of extraordinary, as thousands embraced the message and a community was born. So our communal life began to take shape. We clung to the apostles' teachings, breaking bread in shared fellowship. And prayers became the heartbeat of our new found family. Our lives were harmoniously connected by faith in Jesus. At the beautiful gate, a chapter of compassion and healing unfolded. Peter and John, prompted by the Spirit, encountered a vega seeking silver. Instead of silver, they offered something priceless, a teaching, a healing torch in the name of Jesus. The once lame man leapt with joy, and the ripple effect of this miracle touched the hearts of all the eyewitnesses. However, as our community grew, challenges emerged. The arrest of Peter and John tested our unity, but the power of their testimony echoed even within the prison walls. The message of resurrection resonated, and the resolve of our leaders inspired unwavering faith. Assembled before the Sanhedrin, I witnessed a powerful defense. Peter and John, once simple fishermen, stood as eloquent defenders of our faith. The authorities, perplexed by their courage, reluctantly released them 
acknowledging the undeniable force behind their convictions. Back with the embrace of our community, collective prayer became our anthem. And one day, faced with growing opposition, we sought divine guidance and boldness. The room seemed to tremble as if responding to our heartfelt plea, reinforcing our shared commitment to the path we had chosen. A spirit of generosity infused our collective spirit. Individuals like Barnabas aroused as symbols of selfless giving, echoing our communal commitment to supporting one another. Inspired by the sacrificial love we witnessed, we sold our possessions willingly to help each other. The journey continued and a sensitive episode unfolded. The deception of Ananias and Sapphira. That brought a stark reminder of the importance of genuineness within our community. Yet, even in the face of this challenge, the power of healing continued. When with the sick being brought into the streets, hoping for the mere shadow of Peter to fall upon them. <laughs> As a witness to these miracles, from the ascension on that hill to the healing in the streets, my personal journey within the early Christian community has been nothing short of extraordinary. These chapters of my life become a narrative of farewells, empowerment, compassion, resilience, unity, and above all, the undeniable presence of the Holy Spirit in the ordinary moments of our shared existence. Well, that was a summary of the first five chapters of the book of Acts. And just keep this in mind. All that was happening in Jerusalem was totally new. Jerusalem was upside down. Okay? So you might think after this outstanding reality of miracles that the church was experiencing in the middle of Jerusalem, when everyone went to meet with God in the temple, that the religious elite would recognize that something supernatural was happening, and no doubt God was in it. But Acts 5.17, let's read it. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. What is wrong with these people? The most significant divine undertaking in human history was unfolding in their midst. Yet, they have now become the main enemies of the very divine work they were supposed to advance. 
does that not stand out to you? The religious leaders who should promote God are against God. Sadly, sadly, we have seen, we have seen that many times in church history. But why did they behave like that? Why did they behave like that? And the answer is jealousy. One of the most powerful forces in the universe is jealousy. This insane disease has led to many conflicts, wars, and disagreements in this world. It was jealousy that made Cain kill his brother Abel. Jealousy was the root of the strife between the sisters, Rachel and Leah. Jealousy caused their children to sell their own brother, Joseph, into slavery. And it was jealousy that led the chief priests to hand Jesus over to be crucified. And now, it is jealousy that drives the Pharisees and Sadducees to capture the apostles. And of course, they were jealous. Of course, they were jealous. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Their task was to bring God to their people. They were the chosen ones to be the religious leaders in Israel. So if God was going to use someone to do miracles and signs, it should have been them, of course. But that didn't happen. God used fishermen and a tax collector rather than them and their dead religion. So getting jealous was logical, but not at all the reaction of men of God. What about you? How are you doing with jealousy? Are you looking around and comparing too much? Are you keeping a score too much? Is it a habit? Do you think God has favorites? Have you allowed yourself to doubt God's goodness for your life? Jealousy is very common. Ecclesiastes 4.4 says this, I saw that all toil and all skilling work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And envy or jealousy towards someone goes beyond mere desire for what they possess. If we are truthful, it involves a sense of sorrow when things are going well for them, and even joy when they face adversity. Jealous, jealousy makes you feel unhappy or uneasy about someone else having cool stuff and makes you really dislike them. So dear, dear, dear church, jealousy might look insignificant, but be careful because deep down it is a destructive desire to undermine someone based on who they are or what they have. It can lead you to think, if I can't have it, nobody can. And at some point, rather than seeking to get what someone else has, 
you will want to destroy both the possession and its rightful owner. And that was exactly the mindset of the religious elite regarding the apostles. Although they masqueraded their jealousy as zeal and piety for God, it was very clear that jealousy led them to publicly arrest the apostles and imprison them. But, verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. An angel. Why not? Why not an angel? After all the signs and wonders that this church has experienced in one year, why not now an angel getting into prison to open the doors without anyone noticing? However, I don't think that is the marvel. But what is astonishing is what the angel said to the apostles upon their deliverance. Verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. <laughs> the words of this life is the gospel. Jesus, Jesus is alive, so they are commanded to speak about him. But that is not astounding either. What is surprising is this. The apostles were in prison for having preached the gospel, right? So when the angel sets them free, you would think he would tell them to lay low or chill until the authorities cool off <laughs> about the whole gospel thing. But no, the angel commands exactly the opposite. He commands the apostles, go right back to the task of preaching and evangelism, the same task that brought them to prison. <laughs> Dear friends, frequently we prioritize our safety and security over the gospel and the Great Commission. And I know we really don't like risk, do we? As we go through life, we usually try to get rid of any possible risk always aiming for a, a safe and comfy setup. But the Lord, the Lord's call is not for us to seek safety as a virtue. Safety itself is not virtuous. Our Lord wants us to be big-hearted for something beyond just feeling good about ourselves. So guys, chasing after self-fulfillment, personal fulfillment, is not our main task in this world. Yeah. Christian life is not about us. That would be a very, very cheap Christianity. Christian life is about Jesus, is it about him? And our main task on earth is not amassing money to build walls around our lives to be safe. Rather, our task is to risk it all to proclaim his good news to the lost. Yeah. So dear friends, 
Tell the young, tell the poor, tell the old, tell the ignorant, tell the sick, tell the dying. Tell them about Christ. Tell them of his power, of his love, of his doings. Tell them what he has done for you. Tell them that he, for, he forgives repentant sinners. Tell them of his great love. Tell them that he's going to come back. Tell them over and over again. So dear church, never, never get tired of speaking about Christ. Tell them openly and completely, with freedom and no conditions, without holding back or doubting. Just come to Christ and you will be saved. And this, this lines up perfectly with what the apostles did after hearing what the angels had to say. Verse 21, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. At daybreak, the temple crier called, priest to worship, Levites to the platform, and Israelites to deputation. And so, at their earliest opportunity, the apostles got right back to teaching the people. Talk about a godsy move, picking the time and place for their message after leaving prison. They were really leaving out what they were going to say or to state later in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. Verse 21. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. <laughs> now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. <laughs> then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Imagine reading the newspaper report of the facts that morning, if you were at Jerusalem. It would say, in a rapidly changing scenario, reminiscent of a police comedy, we witnessed the authorities' inability to suppress the apostles' message, as the truth cannot be confined. On a word of the angelic intervention, intervention leading to the apostles' release, the entire Sanhedrin, the governing body of Israel, gathers to confront the accused. However, to their astonishment, they discover well-guarded and securely locked cells that are curiously empty, a surprising revelation. The prison was in order. Apart from one detail, there were no prisoners. 
This serves as clear evidence of supernatural intervention, of course. The captain of the temple guard and the chief priest, instead of finding an explanation, were not only puzzled, but thoroughly perplexed. Their, confu their confusion extends beyond understanding the cause or significance. They were also grappling with the ultimate outcome. Soon, their perplexities addressed as someone breaks in with the news of the apostles engaging in open-air temple evangelism. Reacting promptly, the captain and officers rearrest the apostles who offer no resistance and the officers refrain from using any violent force. The Jerusalem Post. <laughs> this entire episode is full of irony. The apostles are released by an angel whom the Sadducees, the imprisoners, deny the existence of. The political class, who like to be known for their wisdom and knowledge, have no idea what has happened to the apostles. The leaders of the temple are so frightened by them that they fear being stoned if they injure the apostles in any way. The ironies in this narrative serve as proof of the sovereign influence of God. God possessed the power to render even the mightiest forces in the world as clumsy fools who fear the very people they rule. Nothing can happen to God's people unless he has ordained it. So dear church, God's intentions are unstoppable and the progress of his kingdom cannot be hindered. And so we, his people, should not be silent. So who is in charge? Is it the Sanhedrin? Who is ruling this world? The clear answer is, of course, God. Will the Sadducees have eyes to see it? Do you have eyes to see it? Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You know, for the religious elite, the authorities, it was bad enough to have people flocking to this new movement. But the real problem was more selfish. They said, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they were worried that the apostles, talking about how they played a part in Jesus' death, will make them look bad to everyone else. So again, what is wrong with these people? Their world is changing in front of their faces and they cannot see it. They not only fail to recognize the presence and power of God within the Christian community, but they also appear unable to perceive God's involvement in the miraculous release of the apostles from prison. They are totally 
clueless about God's work in their midst. Plus, they don't seem bothered at all by the apostles' fearless return to teaching in the temple. All they really care about is keeping their own positions and holding on control over the people. All they can see is that this name or this man, as they refer to Jesus, presented a significant predicament for them. It was this specific name that caused fear among them, which is why they went out of their, they went out of their way to avoid saying it and tried to stop others from spreading it. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so it is, is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is bold, brave, and courageous. Peter once more took advantage of the moment to proclaim the gospel. What is outstanding is that he straight up said to the he straight up said that the apostles were the ones genuinely following God's command, not the Jews. And you could tell because God's, God gave His Spirit upon them, not upon the Jewish leaders. That was strong. So filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter accepts his act of civil disobedience based on the principle that we must obey God rather than men. And here's a question. Should Christians always submit to the authorities that God has placed over them? We are always to obey those in authority over us, unless they are telling us to do something that opposes God's word. So we respect the government, but we remember that governments are not God. They are fallible, and they might overstep by making demands beyond the limit set by the ultimate authority, God. For instance, no government has the right to force someone's conscience to believe one idea over another. No government has the right to stop, sorry, no government has the right to force us to believe in a non-biblical view of marriage. Neither does it have the right to stop us worshiping God or sharing the gospel. So a government that forbids the worship of Jesus at that point does not deserve and cannot receive our submission. We cannot bow to Caesar. As Christians, we can never use the excuse, I am just obeying orders as a license for sin. We must obey God rather than men. 
but that doesn't give us a pass to rebel just because we don't like what authority says or if they treat us unfairly, even if it is a hassle. Remember how Joseph and Mary had a tough time getting to Bethlehem. They went along with it because God didn't command, didn't command them to be comfy, rich, or popular. They obeyed the government. So this is the general principle. We went over backwards to be submissive, but we stand with ramrod defiance when someone commands disobedience to God. That is why it's very important for us to understand what, is, what it is that God commands and what it is that God forbids. Otherwise, we are like sheep without shepherd, and we go along with, with what Nietzsche called a health morality, doing whatever anybody tells us to do, when in fact, there are times when the Christian has to say no. There is a reason, dear church, why the first century became the era where the blood of the church became the seed of Christianity. Many martyrs refused to give in to rulers who tried to force them to renounce their faith in Christ and instead lived out their faith, declaring, we must obey God rather than men. So the apostles didn't, did not seek political revolution. Their goals were spiritual rather than material. While they accepted the authority of the government in their lives, they also understood that undivided and ultimate loyalty should not, should not be given to it. So what was the response of the Sanhedrin? They had two options, to receive the word of the apostles, repent and believe, like the crowd in chapter two who were caught to the heart, or to close their eyes and ears, reject the message and get furious. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Their jealousy and frustration exploded into fury. And you know, God's word is like the sun. It can melt the snow, but it can also harden bricks. Some people get caught to the heart. Others harden their hearts. So it is not surprising that they are furious and willing to murder the apostles. After all, they have figured out that the apostles symbolize a movement that seriously threatens their entire lifestyle. It threatens the whole religious structure, structure their roles depend on. So they cannot accept it. Plus, if they acknowledge they were wrong, this means admitting to rejecting Jesus and playing part in his death. So instead, they want to kill the apostles, just like they did with Jesus. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor, 
by all the people, in honor about all the people, stood up and gave orders to put them outside for a little while. And he said to, to them, men of Israel, take care what you are, are about to do with these men. For, for before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing, opposing God. So they took his advice. God rescued the apostles again. Gamaliel, with some wisdom, suggests a hands-off approach, saying they should wait and see. He argues that just like other movements died when their leader did, Christianity will fade since its leader is gone. His main point is that false spiritual movements eventually fail by God's hand. So the council buys it, of course, because many won't admit the apostles could be on God's side. So they act, they act righteous and let God deal with it. Kind of like a fancier version of what they did with Jesus and Pilate. Verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer this honor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is inspiring. In the face of danger and opposition, when things got really tough and the authorities were against them, they did not back down or make deals with the high priest just to make life easier or save their own skin. Instead, the apostles saw a big gap between their beliefs and what the high priest and the Sanhedrin stood for in Judaism. They didn't enjoy pain, of course. They were, no, they were not masochists. But with spiritual eyes and a spiritual perspective, they lived their faith out and even found joy in the face of physical suffering. If God allows persecution in this country, are we ready for it? Are you ready to face rejection, ridicule, or even persecution for your faith? A young preacher in Zimbabwe, Africa, 
died for his faith in Jesus Christ. And someone found this letter in his room. And he wrote this. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. <clears throat> the die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, living, side walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, work by patience. I am uplifted in prayer and labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, be taught, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't keep up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stood up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go until he comes, give it until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. The church, whether it is singing hymns while flames crackle at the stake, in centuries gone by, or praising God while cleaning drains in Chinese prison camps today. <clears throat> the hallmark of the Christian has been and must continue to be joy in suffering persecution. So in a world that often challenges, challenges our faith, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, and follow in the footsteps who fearlessly proclaimed his name against all odds.